Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Lady Doc Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Maggie Smith, and I'm an OBGYN who specializes in reproductive endocrinology and infertility. I started this podcast to help share women's experiences within the healthcare system as both providers and patients to hopefully help us all have a more positive and productive experience at the doctor. As a general reminder, this podcast is not meant to serve as medical advice, and any healthcare questions related to your specific situation should be discussed with your healthcare team. Today, I'm thrilled to have my friend, Dr. Eleanor Toplinski, on the podcast. Dr. Toplinski is a board-certified medical oncologist who specializes in the treatment of breast and gynecologic cancers. You think I'd be able to say that while being a gynecologist. Anyways, if you're not already following her, I encourage you to check out her Instagram, which is at Dr. Toplinski, and I'll link it in the show notes. She shares a lot of wonderful information about breast cancer as well as other cancers, and my favorite posts are the ones she does on lifestyle recommendations for cancer prevention, as I think we're all becoming more and more aware of the environmental toxins and other you know, various things we can do in our lives that are affecting our health. She also has her own podcast called The Interlude Podcast, where she talks with women living with cancer about their journeys. It's really powerful and a wonderful resource for anyone. At some point, unfortunately, we're all going to know someone with cancer or help take care of someone with cancer. In this episode, though, we specifically focus on breast cancer. We talk about breast cancer screening, different modalities for screening, lifestyle recommendations, breast cancer treatment, and so on and so forth. As an aside, my friend Allie Feller, who has the Allie on the Run podcast, which is much more professional than this one, launched her merch today. So go support her and her amazing podcast by getting some merch. My favorite is the Ball Sports Fan Cap. And, you know, she puts out podcasts with a much more regular frequency. I like to keep you guys on my t- on your toes and release it um, when I get around to it. Anyways, without any further ado, please join me in welcoming Dr. Chaplinski. Hi, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. I am so excited to do this because I have for you um, about breast cancer. I meant to do this in October for Breast Cancer Awareness Month, but yes, I, you know, you you think residency will be the busiest time in your life. I, I, I don't know if you found this to be true throughout medical training. There's just different types of busy. Yes. And it changes, right? You have as an attending, you have all of the responsibility, so it's less yes. busy work, but it's more, it's more mentally challenging. I think it's much more mentally challenging. I think number one, um, just before this, you texted me, you said writing notes, the n- documentation is what takes so long often so takes a long time. Is Yes. I don't know. How do you feel about that? I'm getting better. I mean, it's taken me, I'm, I'm for the most part, unless like it's a complicated, difficult conversation, which, you know, in oncology, we do have a lot of those, but 
I'm better at doing them with the patient in the room. Um, yeah. And actually patients like it because I kind of read back to them when I'm writing. So they know what goes into their chart. But it's it's so much. And it's not just the notes. It's it's all the it's all the document. I mean, it's just everything. Yeah, it's not just the no- Exactly. Yeah. Like not just the notes, but then like if something comes back and you talk to them, then you have to document everything. You know, it's just mm-hmm. there's so much. But yes, exactly. And then also like everything every you know there's so much responsibility which obviously you're you know as a medical doctor there is responsibility but I think I don't know I think I just always thought that like residency would be busy which it was but this is just a different busy I mean I think you have as an attending and I, it certainly depends on the specialty and oncology yeah. you have much more control of your time which yes. I always appreciate um and you can control your schedule but you know, it, the, the work doesn't stop when you, you, you know, when your last patient leaves, the, the work doesn't stop. Right. It's not like in residency, you have sign out and then you're done, kind of done, you know, mm-hmm. whereas this, I agree, like I can definitely like block my schedule if I need to do something, you know, that you definitely have much more control over your day to day. But yes, it doesn't like just stop because you signed out or the patients are gone. Yeah. Exactly. So, um, okay, great. Well, if you, before, um, you know, we get any further, if you don't mind just introducing yourself, what you do professionally, and um, I don't know, you can tell us your favorite Halloween candy since Halloween was yesterday. All right. Um, so I am uh, Dr. Eleanor Toplinski. I am a board certified medical oncologist. I specialize uh, in seeing patients with breast and gynecologic cancer. So ovarian, uterine, cervical, I really don't see anything outside of breast and GYN. And and really that speaks to how pretty much all medical oncologists practice nowadays, at least in the Northeast. Uh, I am in New Jersey. I'm a mom of two. I'm a runner. I just ran my fourth marathon a couple of weeks ago. Um, and I'm still using that as an excuse to eat all the Halloween candy. Uh, it's probably not <laughs> anymore. No, I think it's a great excuse. <laughs> and so definitely, definitely Reese's Pieces and Twix. Those are the two. Okay, yes. I love the little mini candies. Also, weirdly, you know the Twizzlers that are like the short ones that only come out at Halloween? Yeah, those are I don't those know are- why those are good. And then also the Reese's Peanut Butter Cups that are like the pumpkins. I really am into those. Yeah, I mean, pretty much anything chocolate, um, I'm I'm here for it. Yes, yes. Well, thank you so much for doing this with me. I, you know, while I am a gynecologist and with reproductive endocrinology, I do have some overlap with the breast cancer and gynecologic cancer world. Um, but I feel like, you know, medicine does become so specialized and like, like you said, like you specialize in a certain type of cancer. I was certain types of cancer. I was just discussing today with a patient about, you know, if she has really bad endometriosis, I would send her to an endometriosis surgical specialist, which is just, you know, kind of crazy that they're these like really little niches, but that's sort of how it's become. Um, so I kind of wanted to talk a bit with you about breast cancer, because I feel like at 35, I'm becoming of the age where, People I know are either being diagnosed with breast cancer or starting to do screening. And I feel like, I don't know, you know, it hasn't really been on my radar until recently. Like, huh, you know, this is something that me and my age group are going to be starting. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we typically say starting mammograms at age 40. Is that still your recommendation for, for the vast, for general population, vast majority, no family history? 
Yeah. So I think that's the key, right? Knowing what your risk is. And most people, I will tell you, actually don't know what their risk is. Um, And so what do I mean by that? We know, you know, obviously if someone has a BRCA one or two mutation, they have a strong family history of breast and ovarian cancer. Typically breast cancer is going to be on their mind. Um, And so they are kind of more in tune with, or I need to, when, you know, start getting my mammograms earlier and things like that. But a lot of other people are at high risk for breast cancer and may not necessarily be aware of it. Mm -hmm. There are genetic syndromes, you know, kind of cancer predispositions and cancer clusters in the family that um, may also increase your risk for breast cancer. So I think the first step is to really kind of get a sense of what your risk is. And obviously, then the question is, well, how do I figure that out? Um, And there are ways to do that online. But I the easiest thing to do is to say to your really your OBGYN or your primary care physician, you know, what's, what is my breast cancer risk? And if it's, if you really don't have any family history, um, they might say, no, you're, you know, you can go ahead and start screening at age 40, but if they're not sure, or you have a high risk, they will probably then refer you kind of to a high risk breast cancer program. But for those of us that are at average risk, then we recommend starting at age 40 or 10 years younger from when your first degree relative was diagnosed. So whichever comes earlier. So let's say you have a mom who was diagnosed with breast cancer at 48 or a Mm -hmm. sister diagnosed at 46 and you would start 10 years younger than they were. Gotcha. That's so, you know, I think one, like most people know, you know, if their mom had it, what I think one issue that I often run into as a doctor is people will know, well, I know that my aunt had breast cancer, for instance, she was diagnosed maybe in her fifties, you know, like, I don't know if she had genetic testing, but she's fine. Now, what is considered, you know, early kind of in your world, or does it really matter um, how early or not early the breast cancer is in the family to kind of assess your risk? So it does and it doesn't. If you, um, the National Comprehensive Cancer Network has this flow sheet that I have displayed in my office because it's impossible to memorize, but it's yeah. <laughs> like a flow chart of, well, if you have X amount of um, first degree relatives and they were diagnosed before the age of 50, then you, uh, you know, can, you should get earlier screening or genetic testing. If you have this many relatives and they don't need to be below 50. So it's not, you know, there's not something I can sum up for you in 30 seconds, but I think yeah. the point for someone listening to this is to say, look, if you you know, if there are multiple family members that have been affected by cancer, and it, again, doesn't have to be breast, it can be other uterine, ovarian, endometrial, colon, you know, you name it, talk to your doctor and say, look, I I have a strong family history. Is this something I should be thinking about earlier? Um, And what we, a lot of times people will say, well, my doctor didn't bring it up. And you know, I do want to say to that is that there's so much that has to happen in a routine visit, and you Mm -hmm. know, right? I mean, you have to do, there's so much to do, that it may just not come up. So empower yourself as the patient to bring it up, even if it's not, if you're not asked about it. Yeah, definitely. I mean, within like a routine well woman visit or routine just person visit at a primary care doctor, there's so much they have to cover. And just, yeah, it may, I mean, it's like, I have my little in my internal checklist of things. And, you know, if it's not maybe on there or flagged in my mind, it may, you know, you may forget to mention it. Um, especially when you're trying to do, you know, at a primary care visit, you know, lipid screening, blood glucose screening, all these other things. There's a lot they have, our primary <laughs> care colleagues have to do. Um, now, 
so in terms of kind of getting back to the routine screening population for people who have really no family history, average risk, and they start at age 40, I know this has been, I remember my mom asking me several years ago if she should go to mammogram every year, every two years. I'm of the mind to get it every year. What is the current consensus on that? Is it mammogram yearly? And then in a minute, I kind of want to talk about all these other additional things, you know, the thermography, you know, thermography. <laughs> yes, the breast ultrasound, the MRI, all of that. So the problem is that there's really no consensus. Um, there are three or four different organizations that disagree. The most conservative recommendation and the one that every single breast surgeon and oncologist and radi- you know breast radiologist follows is starting at the age of 40, going every year and stopping when the life expectancy is 10 years or less. What that means is you may have an 85-year-old who's completely healthy and she should continue getting her screening mammogram, but you may have a 78-year-old you know, that has end-stage renal failure on dialysis and maybe that's not the appropriate time for them to get that mammogram. Yes. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense that like, you know, if they're, th- that may, is lower on the priority list. If they've made it to 78, they have something else going on that, that maybe breast cancer screening isn't the biggest risk for them. Exactly. But at the same time, if you're really healthy, we also don't want to stop because what happens is and what we're seeing is people live longer than if you don't go for your mammogram, you're going to develop a large mass that can, you know, burst out of the breast that can cause infection and smell. Ugh. And, you know, then you also don't want to necessarily operate on someone who is, you know, maybe 90 with a little bit of heart disease, right? So it's important, it is important to be getting the mammograms done so that we can catch something at its very earliest stages. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's similar with like pap smear screening, it's recommended to stop at a certain point. But then, I, I mean, I think just age cutoff, you know, is not totally appropriate for everyone because what if you're 66 and still sexually active like you may still need pap smear screening you know especially if you have a new partner or something like that um especially as people live a lot longer so okay so that clears that up and then i get a lot of questions about you know is just a regular mammogram okay do i need that in an ultrasound i mean i usually defer to radiologists on that but i know there's a lot of the 3d mammogram thermography all of these things what is what's the general recommendation for the vast majority of people yes um so the kind of everyone should get a screening mammogram pretty much i would say at least in new jersey um i don't know about other states but most most places are only doing 3d mammograms if you're not but i you should always get a 3d mammogram so i would check with the place that you're getting it Uh, A 3D mammogram really allows you to get a better visualization of the mass and to distinguish it from background tissue and and really get more characterization of any findings, normal or abnormal, in the breast. In terms of breast ultrasound, we add that for people who have very dense breasts. Now, we typically defer to the radiologist and they make the recommendation whether someone needs an ultrasound or not. Now, some patients have always been getting ultrasounds and because of dense breasts and it's fine to continue. But if you're mm-hmm. sure and if you're just starting out, then that's something that the radiologist will decide. They Mammograms have to report on your breast density. That should be listed in your mammogram report. So that can be very helpful. MRI is going to be reserved um, if there are any abnormal findings um, on the mammogram, the prompt a biopsy. Sometimes we'll add an MRI to that. They're also used for high-risk women, so those with a BRCA mutation or other genetic mutations. Um, and there are calculators 
that allow you to calculate your breast cancer risk. And if it's over 20%, then sometimes we add an MRI to that as well. And those calculators, there are, it's the Tyra Cusick model and the Gale risk model. Both of those mm-hmm. are publicly available. Now you may say, well, people ask, well, why don't we just do an MRI for everybody? And the MRIs can pick up a lot of things that are not actually cancer and so leading to unnecessary biopsies. Mm. You also want to keep getting biopsies. I mean, they're not the most pleasant things. So, you know, what you really want to see those MRIs for is for people that are very high risk that you, you know, you're more likely to find something or you're really, you know, you want to look very, very closely. Um, Gotcha. Thermography is not a recommended or approved method of breast cancer screening, not something that we will endorse. Now, some patients do want to get thermography done, and I have a post about this on my Instagram account that I can share with you. Um, But basically what thermography is, is it uses uh, an infrared camera to make pictures, and they show you kind of like patterns of heat and blood flow in the breast. And so people say, well, if there's heat and blood flow, maybe that's something. But that's not an approved method. And so I do have some patients who really want to get thermography. And I will tell them that as long as they're getting it in addition to their mammogram, I'm okay with that. But it should never, ever substitute uh, mammogram. And there was actually a big FDA warning about that a couple of years ago. Okay, well, that's good to know. And so kind of what I'm hearing is the vast majority of people you know, low risk, they are just average risk rather, Mm -hmm. um, starting with your yearly screening mammogram at age 40. And then these other adjunctive modalities like ultrasound is kind of based on either your breast tissue or if something comes back based on your risk at that point. Exactly. Oh, gotcha. Okay. And then, um, I kind of, so in turn, going back to now people who are at higher risk for breast cancer. Certainly, I know there's, you know, the BRCA mutation, people know a bit more, you know, that there's more awareness around that. But I think I see a not, you know, a good number of patients who have an extremely strong family history of breast cancer, almost as if they have the BRCA mutation. And but they test negative. And, um, you know, a couple of them have had these variants of unknown significance, which are when they, um, just for everyone listening, when they get a genetic test and there's, there's some sort of genetic mutation that's running in their family that we don't really know exactly. It's not as well described maybe as like the Brock mutation or Lynch syndrome in terms of what their risk is. But ha- do those patients end up with like multiple family members, multiple first degree family members with breast cancer before the age of like 45 and whatnot? It does sound like it's really based on that chart that you described. Mm-hmm. Are they, it sounds like they do the same sort of screening as, as a BRCA patient. Are they, are they able to get prophylactic bilateral mastectomies if they want to? Would insurance ever cover that? Have you run into that? So this is a really, really tough question. Um, you know, I, I, I personally know people who have, op, you know, have strong family histories who do not have a genetic predisposition and who have opted for mast- bilateral mastectomies. That is not technically recommended mm-hmm. based on guidelines. And so you do run the risk of insurance not covering it. Um, so those are things that have to be sorted out, of course, before you go ahead with the surgery. Yeah. And, and that's tough because, you know, if you look, you have a very strong family history. Is it just the gene that we haven't discovered yet? And I, and I think living with that 
fear in anticipation is very, very hard. Um, but at the same time, you know, bilateral mastectomy is also not without its risks. Yeah. I think it's really, that's something you, ha- you know, you have multiple conversations about and really understanding what it means to have a bilateral mastectomy, what it means to have reconstruction if you go down that road. But people have done it, but it's, I would say it's actually not that frequent. And I think maybe in part because of insurance or maybe in part because, you know, a bilateral mastectomy is a, it's a big deal. Yes. Yeah. Getting breast cancer. So I I certainly don't want to undermine that, but I I think there's just not a right answer to that. Such an individual choice. Yes, exactly. I mean, I've run into it that I've just had a couple of patients who are young, who you know, are not at that point yet. They don't have the BRCA mutation. We're trying to help them conceive maybe a little bit quicker than, you know, you would typically come to a fertility doctor, mainly because of this risk. And, you know, they are kind of unsure as to what to do. Um, I mean, I don't really give, I just, you know, listen to them and say like, you should talk to like the breast surgeon and everybody else, because it is such a big surgery um, and such an individual you know, which, which is, it's kind of like, which is, is the mental like calculation all the time of like, do I have breast cancer or not going to be totally overwhelming to you? Um, and then and to that point too, I had several friends who've had bilateral mastectomies and while they typically, you know, there are plenty of wonderful surgeons out there. It's not super easy to recover from, especially I know, like depending on your reconstruction and how you can like move your arms and everything and mm-hmm. doing your exercises and whatnot. Um, and then kind of getting back you know, circling back to like being worried if you have breast cancer or whatnot. I know several years ago it was, you know, the ACOG actually said not to do breast self breast exams anymore. What is you guys, what is like as a breast oncologist, a medical oncologist who specializes in breast cancer, what do you guys tell people? I'll kind of tell you my opinion after I hear yours. Yeah. So if I mean, I think the reason that came out, came out in 2015, I think. Yeah. Uh, and it, it really was that what they were finding is that people were not finding breast masses, you know, on, you know, on their day of their exam, right? So if, okay, you know, you do it on, I don't know, let's say the first of the month, that's not when people were finding their masses. They were finding lumps in the shower. Or they were finding lumps, you know, while getting dressed or their partner was finding them. And so based on that, they kind of said that they didn't recommend it. With that said... I think that it is really, really important. And this is kind of the philosophy of pretty much all oncologists and breast surgeons. It's really, really important to know what your breasts feel like so that if mm-hmm. you do find something that is abnormal, you're able to say, yes, that wasn't there, right? If you never feel your breasts, how do you know um, if it's normal or not? And knowing how they feel at different times of the month with your menstrual period and the menstrual cycle is also really important because there's a lot of hormonal changes that will change how the breasts feel. Now, for some people, they really find it helpful to do it once a month. You know, the first of the month, there's this whole movement of feeling on the first. Um, and I think that's great. So it's it's a personal choice for however you choose to do it. But I do believe that people should know what their breasts feel like. With that said, if you feel something, this isn't the time to be like, oh, I I. I'm not sure. I think it was there before. Let me wait. You call the doctor. So, yeah. Like you, you, you want, if you find something, you don't want to sit on it. And even if it turns out to be nothing, and most of the time it will turn out to be a cyst or a fibroadenoma, it won't turn out to be cancer, but you just don't want to ignore that or delay it. Yes. Yeah, I agree. That's a, kind of what, you know, I feel like 
you know, having it, the, the field on the first ball, it's wonderful. You don't have to necessarily do it every single month, but just if you know what everything, what your breast tissue feels like, then you can kind of detect that change. Um, which I, I, you know, people know people anecdotally who have, you know, caught a breast cancer that way. Um, so it's, I think it's important to at least, you know, have an aware, I think the ACOG called it like breast awareness, um, or something like that, which is, you know, as some, you know, some patients want to like, you know, yes, I want to do it every single month, which is great. Fine. Um, but you don't necessarily have to do that. Um, that's so the other question I often get asked and, and maybe it just is like, you know, I'm, I'm really usually dealing with 30 something year old women. Right. Mm-hmm. And they're always asking me, are you seeing it up to, you know, I have a friend who just got recently diagnosed with breast cancer. Is there like an increase in breast cancer? Is it because of all, you know, our shampoo and all these other things? Um, I mean, I tell them, you know, and, you know, anecdotally, you know, just knowing some, you're going to, as you get older, you will know someone who has breast cancer or who has X, Y, or Z disease, you know, whatever it is. Um, is, has there been an increase in breast cancer? Is it more of a detection is so much better? What kind of is the breast, what is the breast, uh, you know, it's the same as when people ask me if infertility is increased and I can tell you my answer to that. Um, so I want to hear about infertility, but in- yeah. Yeah, there are, there is definitely a little bit of an increase in younger women. Um, 9% of women are diagnosed before the age of 45 and 9% is not a small number. Um, you know, and I, I think that there are certainly a number of reasons for why there that is. Um, a part of it is, I think the numbers are surely increasing, but you know, once you start talking about it, you hear about more and more people who've been diagnosed. And I think that because it's so prevalent on social media right now, and there's these amazing cancer communities, um, you, you kind of get enmeshed in them. Right. And so it seems like the numbers are really, really high. So they are, but not kind of very rapidly. Um, as to why that is, I think there's a number of reasons. We know that having children or having multiple children, and especially the younger that you are, that is a protective risk factor. So we know that people are, um, the average age of childbirth is increasing, right? People are doing Mm -hmm. it. Yep definitely um, a contributory factor. But I'll be honest, I mean, I definitely think that our lifestyle contributes. We know that alcohol is a big carcinogen for breast cancer. Having one drink a day increases your risk by 10%. And so God, uh, and think of (laughs) have a drink, right? It's not a dry, it's probably like a glass and a half of wine when you pour it, right? And I'll have another one. And so that really can add up. And I get nervous about thinking about all the alcohol that was consumed during COVID, right? And what that's going to, how that's going to translate into risk down the Yes. Um, you know, and some of the, like, just the, like, we're very sedentary society. Um, you know, exercise is so important in reducing breast cancer risk or factors. I, there's not just one. I mean, the other thing that comes up a lot, of course, is like, the products and like the toxins in our environment and all of that. I think definitely that contributes somewhat, but we don't have a clear handle on any of that. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of actually the same thing in terms of infertility. When I get asked all the time, if I, if I see that there's an increase in infertility and I think certainly yes, because people are waiting so much longer to have children, it is, you know, not physiologic to, you know, in terms of your most fertile years or really when you're much younger, when no one is really having, 
or the vast majority of mm-hmm. people are not having children anymore. Whereas at age 40, it's not as, it's not as natural to be fertile as fertile as you were when you were 20. Mm-hmm. But, you know, so that's one reason I think there's also more awareness now about infertility. Whereas, you know, 20, 30 years ago, people didn't really talk about it as much. And there wasn't as much as many treatment options as well. You know, IVF is only 42 and a half years old. So it's not like this was a, you know, this has been around forever. Um, I, so I think it's a a combination of awareness plus waiting to get pregnant. And then, um, in terms of, I definitely there, you know, there has to be, I, I have to believe there's probably some impact of all of these chemicals and things that are in our environment that are probably affecting us in a multitude of ways, how much, by what percent, I can't tell you, you know, like Mm -hmm. what makes someone have, you know, diminished ovarian reserve, you know, we don't really, a lot of times we don't really know, but so I just, you know, but that's kind of a more, it's like a larger societal question of what we're going to do with all of that, you know, as we get older, but the, the alcohol risk in breast cancer is something I always think about. Um, and I will be interested to see with COVID with both missed screenings and all the alcohol consumed, how that impacts things. Yeah. I mean, I, I think there's a lot more to come. I don't think that we've begun to see the impact uh, of COVID on cancer in general. We started seeing kind of in those few months in 2020, when people are not going for their mammograms, there were a number of studies showing that, you know, people were being diagnosed at later stages. But mm-hmm. I think we've begun to scratch the surface of, of really the ramifications of this. And the other thing, there's a, a very early data, and it's not really, it's very early, it's really preclinical data, but there's been some talk of whether having severe COVID increases your risk for cancer or cancer recurrence. And no one knows uh, the data, yeah. very, but it's preliminary, but very scary. And I, um, you know, when I, we talk to people about getting vaccinated, you know, I, I don't mention that because I don't want to, I don't want to scare someone into getting the vaccine, but I think it's right. an important point that we just don't know yet. Yes, that's is that, and it, it makes sense, right? With COVID being such an inflammatory condition, and thinking that maybe the like that overwhelming kind of inflammatory response, maybe I don't know, modulates the immune system, modulates the cancer if there is any. Um, uh, but that's really interesting. I mean, it's yes, exactly. It's like I never want to scare you know fear monger anybody into getting the vaccine, but I do, I speak with all of my patients about, you know, we're trying to get you pregnant. That puts you in a higher risk group. We know that women who are getting pregnant and getting COVID are getting very, very sick and going to the ICU at higher rates, you know, and I don't want that to happen to you, but that's super interesting about, you know, I I find every few days I'm learning something new about COVID that really um, is terrifying and, and fascinating at the same time. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And then, a- um, yes. And then speaking of COVID vaccines, you know, I know right when it came out and people were getting mammograms, um, there was maybe some like abnormalities on the mammogram as is that, was that just some sort of like inflammatory change that maybe it's, is it recommended not to get your mammogram around the time of your vaccine now? Yeah. So we found that once people started, once a vaccine was available, people started getting it, they were coming in for mammograms and getting on the side of the arm where they got vaccinated, they were having swollen lymph nodes. And of course, that's very concerning and worrisome. And there were biopsies. And we realized very quickly that it was probably, you know, what did all these people have in common? Oh, they had just gotten vaccinated on that side. And so really, we've learned since then that the vaccine by inducing an inflammatory response can cause 
enlarged lymph nodes. And that's, I mean, that's what it should do, right? Because you're, right. yeah, that's how it works. So it's a good thing. Um, but it's not, it's confusing if you're about to get your mammogram. So what we do recommend is having at least about a four to six week window, uh, you know, separating your vaccine and the mammogram. And the same should go for the booster as well. Gotcha. Yeah, actually, I'll have to say, interestingly, after my booster, I had like axillary, like armpit lymphadenopathy. I could like feel some lymph nodes. It was the, and it like hurt. Um, and that was the only one that that's happened to me. Um, but um, thankfully I was not as, you know, debilitated like I was after the second vaccine the first time, uh, the first time around. Um, and then just kind of getting a little bit into breast cancer. There's so many things to talk about breast cancer. And I feel like there's just, you know, so many subtypes and, you know, you can go on and on about it, but I'm curious, you know, in terms of surgery versus chemo radiation, how is that, how is like surgery first versus chemo radiation first really determined? And I had heard recently from someone um, that actually the bilateral mastectomy maybe has fallen out of favor in favor of a lumpectomy, but maybe it just depends on what's going on in your personal risk. Is there any, any truth to that? Yes. I mean, you know, we thinking back to the surgeries that people had many, many years ago, right? They did these radical disfiguring mastectomies. They would not just take the breast, but they would take out, like, they would like scoop out your chest. I mean, it was horrible. 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 Yes. Um, And so uh, that, that was not good. And then we've evolved. And so now we have, you know, pretty good mastectomies. We can do nipple sparing mastectomies where we preserve the nipple. Um, there's different forms of reconstruction, but we are trying to, we still try to limit them um, if we if we can. And so we do a lot of treatment up front. We're doing a lot more kind of what's called neoadjuvant chemotherapy. So chemotherapy before surgery. Um, and that allows us not to, to shrink the cancer. It has a lot of prognostic implications, but as a result, you're able to convert a lot of lesions from a mastectomy to a lumpectomy, which is a good thing. Ah, okay. That makes sense then. That's, um, that makes a lot of sense because I was, I've been, was listening to someone I was like, interested, you know, I just felt like everyone I had known had had a bilateral mastectomy. Now, maybe that was just their personal choice, you know, as well. Um, but that makes sense that also with the neoadjuvant, then you end up kind of shrinking the lesion and you can have a little bit more surgical options, let's say. Um, gotcha. Okay. Well, I think, I mean, oh, final question for you. And this is one my mom asked me all the time, you know, she is, you know, very concerned about radiation and like, well, if I'm getting this mammogram every year, is the radiation going to give me breast cancer? Um, so I mean, I tell her it's better to get your mammogram and no. Um, what is, do you get that question ever from people? So I get it a little bit less, I think only because by the time they get to me, they've you know, it's just a different, they've been diagnosed. So it's yes. Like, yeah. But we do get that question. And no, the, the radiation, the background from radiation, the background radiation from a mammogram is really minimal. And so it's really much more important to get the mammogram than it is to worry about the background radiation that you get from it. It's really, really a low dose. And mammograms, it's an important point to make is sometimes people say, well, I had my mammogram last year, so why do I need to do it this year? Mammograms, just by having it once, it doesn't prevent breast cancer. Uh, and so mammograms allow us to catch something at its earliest stages. So if you go once a year, you have the best chance of picking up something early where it's curable, where maybe you don't require chemotherapy, mastectomy, things like that. 
Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think people don't realize that when you get on a plane, there's radiation. Um, And so that, you know, there's, you know, there's radiation that you're exposed to um, outside of just medical treatment and everything. Um, Awesome. Well, is there anything else you want anyone to know about like breast cancer screening, um, what they should know about their risk or anything that you like would like the, like just like your, your platform, your message to people, um, as a breast oncologist. Yeah. So number one, I definitely make sure that you get your screening, that you don't delay with COVID. We've seen a ton of delays. I know I sound like a broken record, but what people say all the time is no one calls me to get my mammogram. And what I think everyone has to realize is that the workforce has shifted significantly since COVID. And mm-hmm. if you're getting a reminder, you may not. So it's really important to empower yourself to make sure you're up to date with not just your breast cancer screening, but with all your screenings. Number two, there are a lot of things that we can do to reduce our breast cancer risk in addition or risk of breast cancer recurrence, exercising, limiting alcohol use, limiting processed food and processed meats and red meats, kind of more of a plant forward way of eating. All of those things make a significant, significant difference in our breast cancer risk profile. And I have a question for you before we wrap up. Yeah. We talk a lot. I I get this question a ton. Infertility drugs and breast cancer risk. It's a great question, which is another one that's a little bit unanswered. I think, you know, so far in the however, you know, the 42 years or so that we've been doing IVF, we haven't really seen an increased risk in, you know, increased incidence of breast cancer from doing fertility treatments. I think certainly if you've been doing after a while, if you've been doing so many rounds of IVF and having such high estrogen levels, could if you already had like a lesion there, you know, it could definitely make it worse. Um, so I think it all comes that of how many cycles to do, of how many, you know, treatment rounds to do. I usually talk with people about their age, risk benefit profile. Do they have a personal family risk of breast cancer and everything? Um, and even like, for instance, if someone has a really strong family history and maybe still a, a negative genetic mutation, I may put them on letrozole during their ovarian simulation just because before, um, or usually have them get a pre, um, cycle, uh, mammogram to make sure there's not anything there before we start. But no, right now, like right now, there's nothing that tells us that this increases breast cancer risk, but I think definitely if there is some nidus of breast cancer, that's like estrogen receptor positive there, it definitely can exacerbate that. That's really helpful because I see a lot of people who've gone through IVF and now are diagnosed and that always, always comes up. And I tell them, yes, that, as far as we know, there's no increased length, but it's always good to hear it from the expert. Yeah, exactly. And it all kind of like sort of goes together, right? Like they, you know, they made, was there, a re, is there something that's going, I mean, I, I, you know, this is again, just like a hypothesis in my mind, but there's something going along with that they aren't able to get pregnant, that is there, is there something, does, does this all kind of fit together, you know, with like their ovarian function and breast, you know, breast cancer and all of that? I don't know necessarily, but just sort of, I kind of, I, I always think about that in the back of my head. No, I think that that's true. Yeah. Well, this was such a great conversation. I learned so much. I took notes. So I can tell my patients <laughs> different things. Yeah. Well, because I also always get about, asked about alcohol and infertility. And so, you know, it's, um, you know, I tell them like, 
of course, like one drink is not going to make them infertile. You know, please don't drink after you've had your first embryo transfer. We've worked too hard to get this far. Please treat yourself as though you're pregnant. But, um, you know, it is a good reminder for me to remind people that, you know, they're, they're outside of just, you know, them trying to get pregnant. There's other reasons maybe to limit their alcohol intake. Exactly. Exactly. Awesome. Well, um, I've so enjoyed this conversation. I can't wait to hit you up for more questions one day. We'll have to come back and talk about like ovarian cancer sometime and cause, which is, you know, a whole nother, a whole nother topic. No, this um, was great. Thank you for having me. Yes. Okay. And everyone should go listen to your podcast. I actually always learn something on there about like the recent one with the skin, um, skin, um, skin, yeah. like care. Yeah. And chemotherapy. I thought that was fascinating. So no, but- I mean, I learn a lot and I, I just am so grateful for the people that come on and share their stories and educate all of us. I mean, you learn the most from patients, honestly. You really do. You yeah. really do. It's so true. When you hear um, one through, it's, it's great. Yeah. Awesome. All righty. Well, thanks so much. I won't take any more of your time and hopefully I'll see you soon. All right. Take care. Bye. All right. Bye. Thank you so much again to my friend, Dr. Toplinski, for coming on today and answering all my questions and hopefully some of yours about breast cancer and screening and lifestyle recommendations and treatment. I really found this episode helpful for me. I even took notes, so hopefully you did too. You know, this is the part of the podcast where people always ask for ratings and reviews and, you know... I like to put these podcasts out, but I don't really put any pressure on myself to do so with any regular frequency if you haven't noticed. But if you do think someone would benefit from one of these conversations, I would love it if you would share it with them. That's the main reason I'm doing this podcast is to help other people have more positive and productive healthcare experiences. You can also leave a rating and review, but only if it's a nice one. Just kidding. Anyways, thanks so much for joining me and I will hopefully we'll speak with you guys soon.